But let's begin reading this morning in Philippians 1.27, because that is directly connected, as I mentioned last week, to the text that we're going to mainly focus on this morning. In 1.27, the Apostle Paul writes, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord, and of one mind. There, there are parallel thoughts going on there in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 2. And, and it took me a while to actually identify this. But I kept reading the text and kept thinking, okay, you know, there's, there's something directly linking these together. And it's, it's, it's an amazing illustration of God's divine handiwork here. He's, he's showing us something in verse 1 that is connected directly to verse 2. And, and it's important that we see it because it's all connected back to verse 27, the command that's given there. But for just a moment, look, look with me at the statement in, in chapter 2, verse 2. There where Paul says, complete my joy. Now, lest we think that this doesn't really apply to us, it only applies to the church at Philippi and, and Paul in particular, we need to understand, I think, what Paul's heart is in, in this statement. I think Paul's desire here is directly linked to Jesus' desire. And so I, I think that you could actually read verse 2 this way. I think you could actually read it in this way, so that we could actually understand how it applies to us, it could be read as complete Jesus's joy, which would be Paul's joy, complete Jesus's joy by doing what it says in verse 27 of chapter 1, by magnifying Jesus's worth, by magnifying his life in the church. And how do we do that? Well, he lays it out there in verses 1 and 2. Have the same mind, have the same love, be in full accord being of one mind, united in one desire, which is to honor Jesus and His value and His worth. We do that by understanding who Christ is doctrinally. We understand what it looks like to love like Christ with agape. We do so with the desire to be in unity. We do so with the desire to magnify His work here in the world as a church. And I think, I think that was Paul's desire when he writes verse 2. Because I think that's Jesus' desire. Paul's desire and Jesus' desire, I don't think, could be separated on this issue. I think Paul desired this because Jesus himself prayed for this. Jesus prayed for his own joy to be filled up, complete, by our joyful humility over our new unity in Christ. Go with me to John 17 to see that. In his high priestly prayer, we see that here. We see that joyful humility in the church should, should flow from this revelation. Our, our joyful humility should, should flow from the revelation that our salvation is because of Christ's intercession. In John 17, verse 6, I'll begin reading. John 17, 6 says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now, they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world. But for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine. And I am glorified in them. This is Jesus' desire. 
ultimately to be glorified through his work, through his people. And verse 11 says, I and I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name. In other words, keep them orthodox. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. That's Jesus' desire. That's his joy right there. That we would reflect the unity that he has with the Father. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now, I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I want you to keep them joyful in this truth. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. You keep them safe through the word here. That's his joy. That's his desire. Because the word points back to his work. Verse 16 says, They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Then he says this in verse 17. Set them apart, or make them holy, or sanctify them in the truth, and thy word is truth, or your word is truth. So keep them orthodox, keep them joyful, keep them safe, and keep them pure by setting them apart from the world in your word. That's going to make Jesus joyful. He says, as you have sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I sanctify myself. I consecrate myself. He, he sanctified himself by setting himself apart to be our sacrifice. He says, for their sake, I sanctify myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, the immediate twelve, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That would be you, the church. That they may all be one. I do not ask for these only. I ask for those who will believe in me through your word, that they may be one just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that, here's the reason, the world may believe that you have sent me, so that the world would know who I am, through the unity of my people. The people who are united in orthodoxy, united in joy, united in safety, united in, in truth. They'll be distinct from the world. That will make Jesus' joy complete. That's what made Paul's joy complete. That's what makes every pastor's heart complete. It's when God's people are walking in unity in the truth. And I think that if there's unity in the truth, I think there's humility and joy in the church. I, I think there is a direct link between biblical humility and biblical unity in the church. And I think that the link is the revolutionary thought of what Christ has done for us by becoming our substitute on the cross. That thought, that truth, that doctrine humbles us greatly. And it also makes us recognize his lordship over us as his body. That revolutionary truth has changed the face of the entire world. The world has been transformed by the work of Christ and the lordship of Christ as manifested in his church. See, Christ isn't here physically. He is here spiritually. But he has given his church the, the authority and the place in the world to be his ambassadors to stand in his place, to reflect his glory. And the church has been progressing since the day Christ ascended. And it will continue pressing on against the gates of hell until Christ comes, united in truth, humbled by Christ's work, united under his lordship as our commander-in-chief. That's what I think Paul wants the Philippians to be humbly and joyfully excited about as they're laboring together for unity. I think he wants their unity to be based on Christ's deity, Christ's lordship, Christ's sacrifice. 
God wants us to stand firm together, strive together to see this revolution of truth come to the world. And that revolution of truth comes through the revelation of Christ. The revelation of Christ encourages the church and it produces humility and unity in Christ's church. Let me give you some examples of how that, that will work. Look with me at John 10. I want to go through a, a number of passages to show you how, how doctrine about Christ will encourage us and at the same time humbly unite us together in obedience and gratefulness. John 10, 27. John 10, 27 to 29. Here's a truth. Here is a Here's a revelation about Christ that should encourage us and produce humility and unity in Christ's body. Verse 27 says this, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. There's no ambiguity. There is no hesitation. It's an absolute statement. They will follow me if they're my sheep. And get this, if they follow him, he says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. We are, we are doubly protected here. And even, we could say triply protected because the Spirit seals us. We are hidden in Christ because we've heard His voice. And we follow Him as a result. That, that obedience follows after this eternal life is granted. God grants us this. This should encourage us. You and I are eternally secure in Christ. That, 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 that should encourage us. That should make us bold. We, we are to stand firm in this. And it should also at the same time bring humility and joy into the church that produces unity. Because we all see that we come in by this grace of God calling us and responding because He has regenerated us. John 15 gives us another encouraging truth that humbly unites us in obedience. John 15, 13, 15, 13 to 17. Jesus says this, Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends friends, if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. Here's the truth that should rock your world right here. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you, that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask, ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you, so that you will love one another. We are chosen by God, in verse 16. We are appointed to bear fruit by God himself. He is the one who is empowering the fruit bearing. And the greatest fruit that he says we're going to bear will be this. It will identify us as followers of Christ. We will love one another as God has loved us. That should encourage you. That should humble you. Your fruit, your productivity, isn't a result of your ability. It's a result of God's sovereignty. Now, look with me at Ephesians 1. This again is another humbling doctrine, yet at the same time it is one that gives us great courage as believers and followers of Christ. Ephesians 1, 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. Nowhere in 3-6 through six is there any credit to man. It is all a divine act from God that brings us into the kingdom, that brings us into adoption, that brings us into salvation. 
but it was all done by His great love for us. So that He receives all the praise, we receive all the benefits. That should encourage us. We have every spiritual blessing that there is in the heavenlies because He has given them to us. They are ours in Christ. Christ has achieved and earned them. They are given to us by His grace. And also, this should humble us because none of us can boast in our own salvation. It's all a work of God. It's a work that is made manifest in the lives of the saints to the praise and the glory of God. Look with me in chapter 2 of Ephesians 2.13. Here again is another Christ-exalting doctrine that gives us courage and humbly unites us in obedience to our Lord. In, in 2.13 it says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Speaking of Gentiles. For He Himself is our peace. Jesus Himself is our peace. Who has made us both one and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that He might create in Himself one new man in place of the two. So making peace and might reconcile us both, Jew and Gentile, to God in one body. That's the church through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, you Gentiles, and peace to those who were near, you Jews. For through Jesus, through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens, heavenly citizens, with the saints, and members of the oikos of God, the, the family of God, the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, built on the truth of who Christ is. That's what he's going to say. Christ Jesus himself being that cornerstone of this building, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built, notice, together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Again, there's no place in the church for any boasting for the Jew or for the Gentile. We're all brought in by the same grace and the same blood of Christ. Brought into a, a holy priesthood, a, a union in Christ to the family of God. Brought together by God Himself. This should humble us and this should also unite us. We are to strive to magnify the great grace of our Lord here out of thanksgiving for what He's done for us. And we, we do that by loving one another as He has loved us. 1 John 4. 1 John 4, verse 14. 1 John 4, 14 says, And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him and He in God. So we have come to know, that's absolute assurance, experientially understanding, we have come to know and to believe, to trust the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in Him. By this is love matured or perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as He is, so also are we in this world." We have, we have assurance on the day of judgment because if Christ is in us, His love will be manifest through us. That's the assurance of your salvation. You will bear the fruit of Christ. You won't have any fear on the day of judgment. We are in the world for that purpose. In verse 18 it says, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love, here's, here's the gist of it, we love, we manifest love, is what he's going to say. We love because he first loved us. We agape because he first agaped us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. He who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this is the commandment we have from Him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. Why? Because the love of Christ, who loved us when we were needy and despised, is now in us. We are not better than any others. 
We want to reach out to the lost. We want to reach out to the needy and the despised because of the love that's been given to us, that's being perfected or matured in us because he first loved us. Now, all these things I'm saying, I'm just saying this. When, when Paul says in, in chapter 2 of, of Philippians, verse 2, he says, complete my joy. And my joy is the, the joy of Christ, the, the joy of seeing Christ exalted. And, and seeing Christ exalted means I'm going to see him followed as Lord and see him rejoiced over as Savior and encouragement flowing from the church, reaching to the world. I'm going to see all that, complete my joy by having the right mind about Christ. That's what he's saying. And so I want you to see these texts to, to, to understand that this is what really changes us as a church. Understanding the truth about who Jesus Christ is is what brings unity to a body. It transforms us. It, it humbles us, and it gives us boldness at the same time. We, we have love for one another in a new way because of the love we've experienced in Christ as revealed in Scripture. That's what we're seeing in Philippians 2, 1 and 2. We see there how the unity of the church is revealed by responding to the truth about Jesus. That's really what this text is about. In 2, 1 and 2, I'll give you the outline. You've got it from last week. We, here in this text, we see that the unity of Christ's body is revealed by our, number one, our encouragement in Christ. Our encouragement in the truth about Christ. What Christ has done, what Christ is doing, what Christ has called us into. Our unity will be revealed by our encouragement in Christ. Secondly, our unity in this body will be revealed by our comfort from Christ. Thirdly, the unity of Christ's body is revealed by our participation in the Spirit who leads us to Christ. And the unity of Christ's body is, is revealed by our provisions that are given to us from the Spirit that reflect Christ's care and love. That's what we looked at last week. Well, Sort of. We looked at part A of verse 1. Last week we learned in that text, though, in, in verse 1, that, that Philippians 2.1 points us back to the command of Philippians 1.27 that's given to heavenly citizens. He's, he's commanding heavenly citizens to let our manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And now listen, Paul, Paul knows that the way, the way Christians, the way believers, heavenly citizens stand in one spirit, stand together, strive together, suffer together as heavenly citizens. He knows that as, as we do that, he knows that we will reveal how much we value Christ. The way we stand together in unity, the way we strive or fight for the faith together, and the way we suffer for Christ's sake together, reveals how much we value the work of Jesus. Church, you're here by God's sovereignty. He brought you here this morning to hear this message. He wants you and I to understand that we have been given a command by Him to stand in unity, strive in unity together, suffer together, so we can show the world how much we value the Lord Jesus Christ through the church. We need to value Him corporately, and we need to value Him personally. In 2, 1 and 2, Paul is saying that heavenly citizens can do this. We are able to do what he's about to say. We can stand, we can strive, we can suffer together if, he says if in verse 1, or since we have encouragement in Christ. We have comfort from Christ's love. We have participation in the Spirit. We have provisions from the Spirit Himself. Let me, let me read a note to you from a commentary on, on this text that talks about the if clause in Philippians 2.1. This is what you need to understand about the if clause that you see there in Philippians 2.1. The word if, the Greek word I, E-I, the word if is the translation of a conditional particle indicating or referring to a fulfilled condition. And here the fulfilled condition was achieved by Christ. So, so basically what it means is this. Let me give you my paraphrase of that. The indicative idea, or the indicating idea that Paul is conveying to the Philippians in verse 2, you see 2, 2, the idea he's indicating is that since there is encouragement, since there is comfort, since there is participation, since there is provisions in Christ, 
then you can stand firm in one spirit. You can strive together. You can suffer as heavenly citizens. And you can do all this with the same mind, the same love, in full accord with one desire. The word I, or if, again, expresses this idea that, that if or since this condition is true in verse 1, and it is, then the commands in verses 27 to 30 and 2-2 are possible. That's what this, this clause, this conditional particle indicates. If, if this is true in verse 1, then you can do the things that are commanded of you in verses 27 to 30 in verse 2. This is very important because the indicative idea, the indicative, okay, is what empowers the command. What's indicated is in Christ, in His encouragement, in His comfort, in His spirit, in His provisions, you can live a worthy life by God's grace. That's the indicative that tells you that you can do the imperative, the command. So, let's go back to the text now. Philippians, Philippians 2, verse 1. And here Paul's going to begin by simply saying, since there is, in fact, encouragement, since there is, in fact, encouragement in Christ, it should be revealed in our bodies, in our lives. That's what he's saying in verse 1. The unity, number one, the unity of Christ's body is revealed by our, number one, encouragement in Christ. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, or we could phrase it this way, since there is, in fact, Encouragement in Christ's calling as our commander, as our savior, the command to stand, the command to strive, the command to suffer together, then, then we should do something. We should courageously serve him. If, if there is encouragement in what he has done for us and what he's commanded us to do, if you are encouraged and fear is removed by the promises of Christ and what he has done and what he's called you into, then you should courageously seek to serve Him and do so by first and foremost encouraging one another in the truth. It starts in the church. We encourage one another here so that we can go out there and declare the truth with boldness. And I said this last week, I said doctrinal purity is what cultivates joyful humility in the church. It does so by affecting our minds, renewing our thoughts about ourselves, because it reveals, again, that, that God chose us in spite of our depravity. He chose us for His glory, to manifest His glory in the world. And we stand firm in that truth. We stand firm, united together, humbled by that truth, humbled together in one spirit, because the Bible revealed, as I said last week, that we aren't chosen because of what we do for Christ, but we're chosen because of what Christ has done for us. That unites us. That truth joyfully brings about humility in our minds. And it conforms us to the image of Christ so that the world can see we have encouragement in our commander-in-chief. Now, look at Philippians 2, 2a. This is the parallel thought to Philippians 2, 1a. Paul says, complete my joy by being of the same mind. It means having the same humbled understanding. Complete my joy by being united in humility over the reality of what Christ has done for you. United by the truth of Christ's work, not your works. Humbled by that truth. And what Paul is wanting them to see is, is his joy will be made full when they have the same mind, when they are united humbly in this truth. And when, they, when they unite humbly about Christ and what he's done and they understand this, they'll have the same mindset and it's going to complete his joy. He's going to rejoice over this because he's going to see the truth transform the church. It transforms our thinking. And when our thinking is changed, our actions are changed. And Jesus himself rejoices over that truth because that's why he predestined us to adoption as sons so that we would be holy and blameless before him. Paul knows when he's saying this, I want you to be of the same mind. He knows that if you have right thinking, it's going to lead to right actions. Right thinking reveals how much you value God's revelation. Right thinking shows that you respect and reverence the Word of God, the directions that come from Christ Himself. 
And, and it'll change the way you live your life as Christians. Orthodoxy, orthodoxy leads to orthopraxy. Right doctrine leads to right practice. And so he says, have the same mind. Be united by the truth about who Christ is. Be encouraged by him. Be humbled by this. Be united in doctrine so that you can actually be productive in the world. And secondly, in Philippians 2, 1b, we see that the unity of Christ's body is revealed by our comfort from Christ's love. Now, I've added the word Christ's love, or the phrase Christ's love to this text, because I think that's where he's actually pointing us. If there's any comfort from love, whose love? Well, not human love. It must be agape love. If there's, if there's any comfort from love, if there's any comfort from love, it must come from the love of Christ. That must be where we get our comfort. True comfort comes from Christ's selfless act of love that we see in Philippians 2.5. Verse 5, it says, Have this mind. Again, the mind is affected here. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or asserted, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a slave, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's, that's the source of our true comfort. That love there, that love that would leave heaven's glory and be hung upon a cross in the place of sinners is agape. He didn't see anything lovely in us. He saw how loveless we were, how ungrateful we were, how depraved we were, and he sought us because we could never seek him on our own. And he sought us by humbling himself, selflessly, giving up his life to comfort us for eternity. So, so if there's any comfort from love, from Christ's love, then you need to have the same mindset. You need to be united. You need to be united in gratefulness and thankfulness. United in the fact that all of us are in the body because Christ cares for us. Not one is greater than the other. We were all equally as depraved as we could be. And yet Christ cared for us and came to this earth to live and die for us as a slave, rejected by men, despised by his fellow Jews, hated by the Romans, hated by everyone, because he was holy and righteous, and we aren't. Yet he cared for us. He agaped us. I think one of the things that struck me as I was reading through this, being, being comforted by Christ's love is, is something we never outgrow. It's something we will enjoy for eternity. We'll always be comforted from His love, always united in His love. And, and his, his love and His care for us is, is, is greater than we can even imagine. He, he cares about our immediate suffering. He understands our suffering physically. And, and get this, he doesn't just understand our immediate suffering and our, and our past suffering. He understands the suffering that we will never experience. He understands the suffering that we will never experience because God's wrath was spent on Him instead of us. So He understands and cares about us way more than we can understand. He cares about us with agape. He loves us. Just let the thought of that sink in. He loved you and came and died for you so that you could see this great love and love others to testify to His greatness and His grace. So when we think about this, it should drive us to do that. When we think about Christ's care for us, His comfort for us, it should, it should drive us to a selfless act of love on behalf of others. It should cause us to, to desire to comfort other believers that He came to save. How dare we hold grudges against brothers and sisters in Christ? Jesus died for them. He comforts them. And He has chosen to do so through us, the church. So we must put aside differences. And we must pursue love. That's, that's what Philippians 2.1b is declaring. He's basically saying this. Since there is, in fact, comfort from Christ's love, when we suffer together, 
We therefore should comfort one another like Christ comforted us selflessly with agape. Because actually when we do that, our selfless comfort reveals Christ's love corporately. It's all about Jesus' namesake. The reason we're in the body, the reason we gather on Sundays, isn't for us primarily, though we benefit greatly. It is for Jesus' name. We are to make Him famous. We are to declare His greatness and His grace and His authority and His lordship and His mastery over our lives so that others will see Him and testify that that group of people looks so different from the world, they must be united by something supernatural. And we are. We're united by the comfort of Christ's love for us what it says in Colossians 3. Look what, look what it says in Colossians 3.12. Colossians 3.12 says to us who are chosen by God, the elect, the called out ones, God's church, His family, those that Christ died for and that rose from the grave to declare they belong to Him. He says this to us. He says, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. In other words, put on as those who are elect by God, set apart, and loved by God. Put this on. Put this on. Put on compassionate hearts. Put on kindness. Put on humility. Put on meekness. Put on patience. Bearing with one another. And if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. All of that is a result of God's grace. That kind, of, that kind of meekness and patience and kindness and compassion for one another, especially one another in a fallen world when we still battle with sin and indwelling sin, that is a miracle of God's power at work in the church. And he says this in verse 14. Here's what, here's what ties it all up. And above all these, put on agape, which is cinches up everything. It's the idea of a girdle being tightened up as tight as you can. Above all these, put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony and let the peace of Christ dominate your hearts. Let it rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdoms, singing psalms and hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. All this love that we are to be cinched up in and manifesting is ultimately to bring glory to Jesus' name. It is ultimately to reflect His agape. That's why Paul goes on to say in that parallel thought in Philippians 2, 2b, complete my joy by having the same love. Now, he doesn't mean have the same love as this other human. He means the same love as Christ. That love is the standard for the Christian. And when he says this, this phrase in the Greek, when he says complete my joy by having, that by having phrase means it's to be continually exhibited. Complete my joy by continually exhibiting Christ's love in the body. Paul, Paul says this because he knows that when the truth about Jesus' love rules our hearts, dominates our minds, our lives, he knows that it will bring joy to Christ. It will magnify his name. Selfless comfort for others reveals agape. Selfless love reveals Christ because it considers other people as more important than ourselves. That's what Christ did in Philippians 2, it says in 5-9. through 9. When we selflessly comfort one another in the body, having the same love as Christ, we are manifesting His love and glory to the world and to one another in the church. I truly think that the passage... Uh, Philippians 2, 5 through, through 9, would actually resolve every major conflict in every family if we took it to heart. It would put an end to divorce. It would put an end to disputes in churches. If you truly considered 
every other saint in this body as more important than yourself. That's what Christ has done for us. When He set aside His, His glory, His, His manifest glory, and took upon Himself, He took upon Himself human flesh. He came into the world as a creature. But yet He was the Creator. And He came not as the King in the sense of in authority and rule and power and might. He came humbled as a poor and neglected Jew who became a slave, an outcast in that society, eventually hung up on a cross like a thief on our behalf so that we could have His comfort for eternity. That's the kind of love that we need to consider applying in the church. Christ considered our neediness and He willingly came to serve us. And, and that love should now dominate our hearts and flow out of us into this church body. So just ask yourself this morning, do you have the same mind and the same love as Christ? Do you want that? I'm sure you do. We all want that. We want to have the same mind and the same love of Christ that causes us to consider others in this church family above ourselves. Agape, His love, is what binds the church together in unity. Okay, if, if unity is what Jesus prayed for and unity is what Jesus wants... Why is there disunity in the visible church, in the body? Why is there disunity in local churches? Why is there disunity in my family? Well, I have a simple answer for that. And, and the whole chapter of 7 of Romans deals with it. My simple answer is this, indwelling sin. Indwelling sin. We are saved, being saved, will be saved, okay? We are guaranteed eternal salvation, but we are still entrapped in this flesh that is prone to wander, that has developed habits in the past that still come back to haunt us. We're still fighting with the flesh. Though Christ has conquered, we're not enslaved to sin any longer, there is still sin in our flesh. It is not completely redeemed in that sense. It will be when we're glorified. The body will be changed. Sin will be extracted completely and perfectly and eternally. But right now, we, we sometimes, when we are away from God's means of grace, we are sometimes dominated, controlled, or filled by the power of the flesh, not the power of the Spirit. See, when, when Paul wrote in Colossians 3 that we need to have our hearts dominated or ruled or controlled by Christ, he goes on to tell you how to do that. At the end of that passage, he says, let the word of Christ richly dwell in you. When we're not doing that, we will be prone to disunity and disharmony and a lack of peace. That's, that's why when you read Scripture and it talks about being filled with the Spirit, the way, the way it's written to us especially in the Greek, you can see this, we are, we are commanded to be being continually filled by the Spirit. Be being filled by the Spirit. And what he means is, be dominated, be continually dominated, be continually controlled by God's Word. Ephesians 5 and Colossians 3 are parallel texts. In those two texts, one says, be filled with the Word of Christ. The other says, be filled with the Spirit. They both produce the same thing. When you're filled with the Spirit, you're dominated by the truth. When the Spirit of truth resides in you and you're feeding on the truth, it'll dominate your actions. It'll dominate, it'll control, it'll direct you. Gospel truth, when you're, when you're filled with the truth, here's the good news, when you're filled with the truth, when you're dominated by the truth, when you're absorbing the truth, it mortifies the flesh. It puts the flesh to death. But when you neglect God's means of grace, disunity will raise itself up in the body. That's why we need what we're going to look at next in verse 1c. We need to be constantly participating in the Spirit's means of grace, which is feeding on the Word and growing together as a body in fellowship. That's the third point we see here. The unity of Christ's body is revealed by our participation in the Spirit. Philippians 2, 1c. 
He says, so if there is, or since there is in fact, participation in the Spirit, which means fellowship or spiritual union with other Christians, since, since there is this, it needs to be revealed in the church and in our lives. It needs to be revealed. Since you, you've been placed in the body by Christ and you've been given His Spirit so you can participate and become a part of a local church, part of His body that's known visibly, therefore you should rejoice that you are now given this means of grace to hold you, to care for you, to help direct you into God's means of grace, which is the teaching of His Word. When we come here and gather on Sundays like we're doing right now, or Wednesdays, when we're, what we're doing is, is something supernatural. This is an act of worship. And we're participating with the Spirit in this, and we're to do so to honor Jesus. There is no such thing as a lone ranger Christian. We are part of the body, a unit. And, and our participation in the Spirit reveals that we honor Christ's desire to come together. It reveals how much we love Christ when we gather together to unite in the truth. A lack of desire to be here shows a lack of desire to honor Christ. That's what it means. Now, I'm not saying you, you're sick and you can't be here. I'm talking about a desire. There are people that aren't here this very morning, and they want to be here, but they can't be here because of physical reasons. That's different. I'm talking about a desire. Do you have a desire to participate in the Spirit? If so, it's because you have this encouragement in Christ that He has called you, He's comforting you, He has loved you, and He wants to transform you. That's why we participate together. He wants to conform us to His image and protect us from disunity and disharmony, so He gives us the body. The body is given to protect and to transform so we can grow together into the image of Christ. That's what it says in Ephesians. Go with me to Ephesians 1, 13. 1, 13. It says, In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed by the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ, when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and power, or rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also on the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body and the fullness of him who fills all in all. It's, it's his body. We are his body. We are his people sealed by his spirit, guaranteed that we have an inheritance in heaven. And we're sealed together so that we would actually have a revelation of who Christ is and we would rejoice in that as a body. We would manifest the truth by our joy and our care and our love for one another. We will participate. We will have fellowship in this. This is what makes us all connected. We are in union with one another, perfectly in harmony, and will be so for eternity. And that, that is supposed to remove any disunity in the body because we have participation in the Spirit. That participation leads to growth and protection. Hebrews, Hebrews 10, Hebrews 10, 23. Hebrews 10, 23 tells us that we are needy. We, are, we need this body. We need this gathering together because we are prone to wander. We are prone to weakness. We are prone to disunity. So we need this constant encouragement. And by the way, this is a divine command. God knows we need it, 
He cares about us enough to give it to us, to give us his body, and then he commands us to not forget this. It says in verse 23, Let us hold fast the confession of our faith without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider, let us think, let us ponder, let us cultivate how to stir up one another. Stir up one another to love and good works. Well, how, how does he say to do that? Well, he tells you in the next verse, by, by not neglecting. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. As you see Christ's imminent return and you understand who he is and what he's done and what he's going to do when he comes, we need to be drawing closer together, not separating. We need to be considering how to stir one another up to go out and love and Reach the lost and encourage the saints. Do good works. Don't neglect to meet together, but encourage one another. Stir one another up. The idea in that phrase is when you see them backing up and escaping and trying to get away from the fellowship and they need to be encouraged in their love and their good works, then take a stick and prod them and get them back. That's the idea. He says, I love you so much that I want you to know I've given you a means of grace to help you grow in truth and transform your life. It's the church. So when you come back to Philippians 2, when he says this in, in 1c, he says, since, since there is in fact participation in the Spirit, you are able to now strive, not just stand together, but strive together. Since you have fellowship together in Christ, you are now linked arm in arm to go into this battle together, united in truth, participating with one another consistently, joyfully, humbly. He, he knows, Paul knows, and, and, and you and I all know this, that constant participation together will encourage one another. It will encourage you, it'll comfort you, it'll protect you, and it will reveal to the world how much we value Christ who put us here together. He put us here together, and if we value His gift to us, then we will not neglect this gathering. I'm saying that because as we come together in the truth, you are protected. You are guarded. I don't care if it's one of you, and that's the only one who shows up. I want you to be guarded. I want you to be protected. I want you to be comforted. I want you to be instructed, because I want you to glorify Jesus. That's why I want you to be here. Nate and I, all we care about is feeding Christ's sheep. But when you neglect fellowship, when I neglect fellowship, either on Sunday or even midweek or any other time that we have opportunity, we are starving ourselves to the neglect of the body. It's not just hurting you, it hurts the entire body. If I lopped off my finger, my whole body's going to know it. I need every digit, I need every part so that I can be strong. So we need one another. That's why he goes on to say in Philippians 2, to see that his joy would be made full by this. His joy would be made full by our full accord. And that word full accord means by our united soul. United as one soul. His joy is full when, when our spirit is united with Christ's spirit. When Christ is dominating our hearts, when his means of grace is flowing through our lives, we're united as one soul. That fulfills not only Paul's joy, but Christ's joy. It cultivates constant corporate fellowship. And that protects us against divisions. And it stirs up love and good works and evangelism. Now fourthly, there in Philippians 2, 1d, we can see that the unity of Christ's body is revealed by Paul, according to what he says here, by our provisions from the Spirit. It says sympathy and affection, or affection and sympathy. I, I phrased it this way, though, so that you can understand. What he's saying is Christ's body reveals that we are provided for by the Spirit, by our affection and our sympathy in Christ for one another. Our, our fellowship in Christ is a provision from the Spirit. The affection and sympathy that Paul's talking about there is the affection and sympathy among the heavenly citizens. Since there is, in fact, affection and sympathy in the body, because we're provided for by the Spirit, then we should, as a body, seek to honor Christ personally, 
corporately, publicly, by providing for one another with affection and sympathy. Providing for one another compassionately. Compassionate provisions from the Spirit unite us. The Spirit brings us into Christ. He fills us with His directions. He puts us in a body. He unites us as one evidentially so that we can reach the world evangelistically. See, the world sees us. And they can't see what unites us until we walk in full accord together. We walk in participation. We walk in the provisions by showing sympathy and affection for one another practically. That's how the world sees Christ evangelistically. See, they, they hear us talking about the love of Christ. And they look for the love of Christ flowing through us. Jesus loves you, brother, but I can't stand that guy at First Baptist. I can't stand that guy who sits across from me in the church. You know that guy that, yeah. Well, the world sees that as hypocrisy, and then so does Christ. It's pretending. 1 John 3, 10. It says in verse 10, By this it is evident who are the children of God. All right, there's, there's something here that's going to be said that's going to give you a very clear, evidential fact that you belong to Christ. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not from God. Someone who lives in unrepentant, habitual sin is not from God. They're not Christian, no matter what they say. Nor is the one who does not love his brother. So, let's do this in reverse. If you love your brother and you walk and practice in righteousness, the truth, you, you live out the truth, you rejoice over the truth, you repent of sin and rejoice in righteousness, it's evident that you're a child of God. Verse 11 says, For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who is of the evil one who murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life. Here's how you know you're a Christian. You know that you passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. It means if you don't love, it means you have no love from Christ himself. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. And he says this in verse 16, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and what? We ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. That is a provision from the Spirit. A desire to give your life, your time, your money, your effort to serve others, care for others, is evidence that you have been purchased by the blood of Christ. That he laid down his life for you. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? It doesn't. That's the point. Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts, our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. By this, verse 19 says, we shall know, can be completely assured that we are in the truth because we love in deed and in truth. See, truth is not neglected in this. You don't, you, you, the gospel is not deeds. The gospel is doctrine. It's truth. But it's truth that affects the life and produces good deeds. It transforms the one who hears it and gives us affection and sympathy that reflect Jesus. That's the last thing that we see here Paul is calling for in Philippians 2, 2D. He says, you really want to make my joy full, overflowing, filled to the capacity, to the brim? You do that by being of one mind. He's sort of going full circle back to his first phrase, but it's a little different here. He says, be of one mind. Being of one mind means being united by one desire driven by one desire, dominated by one desire. You want to make me really joyful? You want to make Christ really filled up with joy? Then be driven by one desire. 
appreciate and reflect and rejoice in the compassion you have in Christ by your affection and sympathy for other Christians. You need to be dominated by the desire of Jesus who gave his life up for us by giving your life up on behalf of your brothers and sisters. When you do that, it reveals how much you value Christ and all the members of his body. Sometimes we need to be reminded that Christ has provided for us not just eternal life, but a a body, a church, a fellowship that brings us together as God's called together people to teach us to stand in unity, to strive together for his glory, to suffer together joyfully, caring for one another carefully and particularly. He wants us to do this for one main reason, it's to bring him glory. We, we stand and we strive and we suffer with the same mindset and humility, thankful for what he's done for us and showing that with compassion for one another and care for one another. We do that because we want Jesus above all things to be honored in our lives. So, so what, what, do we, what do we love most? Whatever we love most will be most evident in our lives. Love for one another reveals how much you love the one who brought you together. Gathering together to exercise your spiritual gifts is one way to do that. Let me give you some practical things. We'll end. Encouragement in the body can be produced in many practical ways. Let me just tell you some ways to do that. Some, some suggestions, some commands. One, you're commanded to use your spiritual gift to build up the church. Now, with that spiritual gift, I truly believe that the scriptures teach that the gift that you have, which is a supernatural gift, it is to be used practically in the church. And a lot of times that practical use is through your talents. I'm not getting talents and gifts mixed up. I'm simply saying this. If you've got talents, you've got abilities, you've got means of doing certain things that no one else can do, then God's given you His Spirit to equip you, to give you a passion to use whatever means you have for His glory and for the betterment of this body. You need to also learn to reveal that you have genuine affection and sympathy for one another by, first of all, never criticizing. Never criticizing the leaders of the church or the members of the church. And you need to reveal your genuine affection and sympathy by actually and genuinely calling one another, fellowshipping with one another outside of the normal gatherings, going to visit those who are alone, those who are sick. I mean, if we really love Christ, we can't just express it all here in a two-hour service by saying, oh, I love you, brother. Be warm and be fed. No, we have to go. I think go as a result of the joy we have in Christ that unites us to others who aren't able to be here. And we need to show this affection by coming here together consistently, encouraging one another to grow in the truth, encouraging one another in hard times with words from the Scriptures. You, you, you can't truly edify one another in the body if you don't know the word that edifies the body. If you're not here growing together in the knowledge and the wisdom of Christ, it's very difficult to edify one another in the truth. When people call you and they have a prayer request, you say, yeah, I'll pray for you, brother. Uh, good luck with that situation. That is not edifying. Brother, I'll pray with you. The Lord tells us in Romans 8, 28 that this is going to work out for good. Trust in His promises. Look to His grace. Encourage one another with words of truth. Meet together to show your sympathy. Meet together regularly with others to pray together, to talk about theology, to grow together in the truth outside of the Wednesday and the Sunday service. Older women, older men in the faith, not even physically older, but especially spiritually older in the faith, exercise your gift and your knowledge by discipling others in the church who need instruction and compassion. Older women teach the young women how to love their children and their husbands by showing them practically, coming alongside them consistently, asking them questions, encouraging them in their child-rearing, in their discipleship. Those are some practical ways I want to encourage you to 
learn to grow together and stand firm and rejoice in the encouragement we have in Christ that unites us. So let's pray and give thanks to him for that this morning and rejoice over the fact that we are able to come together and do this today. Father, we pray that our our unity together in the church body here would reveal your glory. We pray that it would reveal your love and your compassion and and our duty would, would truly benefit this body. We pray that we would joyfully be driven into our duties for your glory. We pray that we would participate in, in your Spirit's provisions, in our fellowship, in such a way that we comfort one another in Christ, and that we would stand firm having the same mind and having the same love in full accord, so that we could, we could truly have one desire driving us, which is to manifest Jesus to the world. We pray that you would be honored as we continue to fellowship together today in your word. We pray that you would be praised as we continue to practice what we learn in the world. In Jesus' name, amen.